Oh, hello. Hello. <laughs> hello there. <laughs> we haven't done voices in a while. It's true. And welcome to the New York Mets driver show. Family all, but for ghosts. Oh, fuck that ghost. But for ghosts. How well, are you? <laughs> I'm good. Could do the whole episode like that. I'm I'm doing well. It is a wonderful late August Monday. Yup. <laughs> yup. You guys know it's not. It's actually um, July and it's a thousand degrees. It's a thousand degrees, you guys. Um, but you know, so excited to be to be back at it to be to be here with another all new episode of the New York Mystery Machine, finishing out the month of August. Um, we we are we do have an episode next week. Next week's Labor Day, but we do have an episode. We're we, still here. We always record. Still labor. laboring away. We labor away. This is when Tammany was supposed to be born. Oh, Tammany was supposed to be born on Labor Day, which yes. would have been like a really, I mean a spectacular. Yeah, the whole episode would have been dedicated to Tammany Labor the day. She ruined the act, Job. <laughs> she ruined the act. I just started watching Arrested Development. I get that now. <gasps> Look at this. I Great. just get it now. Isn't that yes? Good, good. I don't do tricks. I do illusions, Michael. Illusions, Michael. Tricks aren't whores do for money or candy. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, that's development. It's actually very, very. It's it did not stand the test of time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, I think it like leans into how bad it is. Yeah. Anywho, um, yeah, but I actually get that reference. Like just just a few weeks ago, Delighted. we talked about how I don't get Christina's references half the time. And here, here we are. We finally. I think this might be the first time we have a mutual. <laughs> no, I get references sometimes, yeah. but that's the first time I picked it up real quick. Yeah, that you'd have to explain it to me. That's true. That's and true. That, there it is. We want to take this moment to thank everyone for all our well wishes from episode one hundred. Um, you know we're recording this beforehand, so we don't know if you actually gave us well wishes, but we're gonna go we're and assuming. assume that you wished us a happy one hundred. Exactly. And if you didn't, shame. If you didn't, you're listening to this now, you're like, oh shit, I should have wished them a happy episode 100. <laughs> I guess I'll wish them a happy episode 102. It's like when I go, uh, Facebook doesn't alert me to someone's birthday and oh, it's the day fuck. after I log and I'm like, oh, I'm not, me? I'm on Facebook on my phone anymore. And I'm very screwed, rarely open and I don't get notifications. And it, screw, it screwed up the people, like it screwed up the people's, who, I don't know anyone's birthday. I keep saying like, people's Fair. birthday. I don't know anyone's birthday. I know my mom's. Yeah. I know my brother's. Mm-hmm. I know... Sam's mm-hmm. I know Natalie's and Christian's and Anthony I only know Anthony and Natalie Anthony and Christian's because they're a day apart oh. and I know my roommates I don't know okay. yours yeah. straight up honest I just That's don't know fair. ask me the month I can't tell you I don't know what month you were born in I just don't know you know what month I was born in thank you October ooh got one up on me um. Yeah. It is. It is October. So well played, Christina. Ha I'm just really bad at birthdays. I mean, same. Honestly, same. Without. Without. Sometimes I remember like. Sometimes I'll remember the month, because I remember do if people Something, do things. Yeah, sure. Like my friend Andy. I we we. It's always like before Thanksgiving, so I know we're gonna do things. My friend Jesse, his wife. I know it's in July because mm-hmm. I, I've seen her a couple of times on her birthday. Right. But if, especially if I don't see you on your birthday, if I don't right. do anything with you, it gets lost I'm, in there. I, even if I do, my brain doesn't always, like, very well. When's, your, when, when's your birthday? August. Yeah, I wouldn't remember that. Yeah. I tend to not really do much for my birthday. What day in August? Third. Oh, we've already passed on the show. Yeah. Well, there it is. Did we have a show on your birthday? And we no, know your it's birthday? a Thursday this year. It's the opening night of Teen Drama. Mm, 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 mm. <laughs> yeah. Well, sorry, future Adam. You've got a lot of editing to do. <laughs> happy birthday! Happy birthday, 
Christina uh, Thank you. about a few weeks ago. Thank you. And um, from this recording. Everyone wish Christina happy birthday from a few weeks ago. You all missed it. I still can, <laughs> fu- pa- future me can still wish Christina a happy birthday on the actual birth of right. her. Which actually you did last year. I probably had Facebook still. Ah, uh, that's it. I don't know, but I'm putting it on my calendar. <laughs> August 3rd. Well, this is a weird start to an episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, where are we today, Christina? We're, we're, uh... yeah, we, we took this long turn. <laughs> we're, uh, we're in... After episode 100, we just cruise. We really did. Stop listening. We don't, we don't give a fuck. <laughs> right. we, we made we goals already. <laughs> God, why do they talk about such random shit in the first ten minutes all the time? <laughs> I put, I love, I put, I put out that poll at the end of season one, season one, at the end of season two of just things that you want to see and the things that they've people have wanted to see. We haven't, we haven't got any of those done yet. Mm. Um, but in my brain, I should have been like, do you guys relish those first ten minutes, or do you skip over them? Do you or keep do you pressing skip? skip fifteen seconds? Until I probably get... could check the analytics, but I think I'm too my, my ego's too Don't, too fragile. Let's not, let's not do that. Where are we, Christina? We are in slightly upstate New York, and then in New York City. We're we're straddling places today. <laughs> straddling places. So. We're going to start today with um, a New York Times report from Monday, August 11th, 1975. Adam, would you do the honors? Certainly. My finest New York Times report. Mm. Son of Brothman reported missing. The Federal Bureau of Investigation said last night that it was investigating the reported kidnapping of the 21-year-old son of the president of the Seagram Liquor Company. In a terse statement issued from its headquarters in Washington, the Bureau said it had been informed that the young man, Samuel Brofman II, son of Edgar M. Brofman of Yorktown Heights in Westchester County, had been abducted by the three men early Saturday. No ransom demands have made to the youth's father, a spokesman for the Bureau said. The spokesman said that prior to the reported kidnapping, the young Mr. Brofman allegedly was driving to a party in his personal vehicle last Friday. That was August 8th. In the FBI office here, a spokesman refused to elaborate on the Washington announcement, saying, quote, We are neither confirming nor denying that a kidnapping occurred. It was learned, however, that FBI agents from New York office have, with the police of Yorktown Heights and other towns in Westchester County, been pressing an investigation into the young man's reported disappearance. <laughs> You said the name Brofman. Yes, I did. Which sounds very familiar to me and our listeners. As it should. Um, yeah, you'll remember that uh, name Bronfman from the Nexium trilogy. So Claire Bronfman and Sarah Bronfman are sisters who are high up Nexium members and funders of Keith Raniere. And in fact, they're often credited as instrumental in getting Keith to meet the Dalai Lama, etc. Now, neither sister was born at the time of this story. Um, but their older brother is Samuel Bronfman, the guy from that the New York Times is saying is kidnapped. There you have it. So the Bronfmans. Man, the Bronfmans really like a legacy. Legacy of like fucking shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> we just you wait. Uh, oh God. Yeah. So uh, the Bronfmans or Bronfmen or Bron- I, I don't know. Uh, the Bronfmans are Bronf a, people. Bronf people <laughs> uh, are a Jewish Canadian family from Montreal who run the Seagram Liquor Company. They started with a liquor distillery in 1925 and then opened U.S. subsidiaries. And in 1975, the Distillers Corporation Seagram's Limited was making over $1.5 billion a year in sales the world over. They sold over 100 brands of whiskey and liquor and could be found in over 100 countries. The Bronfman family was investing their money in oil, 
real estate, trust funds, and some foreign concerns. So they've got money. Um, now, at some point, the Bronfins had left Canada for the States, settling in Yorktown Heights along Route 100. Of the Yorktown home, uh, where Edgar Miles Bronfman lived, the New York Times wrote, quote, Although Yorktown, which embraces the hamlet of Yorktown Heights, has grown rapidly in the last 25 years, so at the time since 1950, from a semi-rural village of 4,000 population dotted with summer homes to a suburb of 33,000 commuters and others, some sections have remained exclusive. And nowhere does it supply more than to Route 100, which skirts the western shore of the Croton Reservoir throughout Yorktown Heights and the town of Summers. Faded mailboxes, occasionally offering only cryptic designations, lead from the road to the privacy of homes and estates in the wooded hills beyond. The Bronfman home, a granite Tudor-style mansion, standing at the end of a half-mile-long driveway on a 180-acre estate, was purchased within the last year, so between 1974-1975. It was a very secluded space, basically. Now, Edgar Miles Bronfman, who's head of the company at the time, was married five times, twice to the same woman, Rita Eileen Webb. His first marriage to Anne Margaret Loeb, herself an heiress, resulted in five children, Samuel Bronfman II, the protagonist of our story today, Edgar Bronfman Jr., Matthew Bronfman, uh, Bavani Lev, who was originally called Holly Bronfman, and Adam Bronfman. Now, Samuel the second, was born in 1953, making him 21 at the time of our story in 1975, and he's heir apparent to the Seagram fortune. He was six foot three inches, yep, six foot three inches, 190 pounds. Uh, he had graduated college that June, just two months earlier, from Williams College in Massachusetts with a degree in American Civilization, which apparently some kind of combination of history, literature, social sciences, etc. Apparently he was working for state senator, um, Roy M. Goodman from Manhattan, investigating juvenile detention centers, and then he had some post-summer job plans lined up as well. He was going to work at Sports Illustrated in the publishing office to work on marketing and merchandising and promotion. Um, and so he had, you know, things looking real good for this, uh, this, this rich kid. Now, the article that was describing the Bronfen estate that I mentioned earlier also noted that some of the other residents of the area lived uh, in more modest facilities, and they quoted some residents as complaining that the only time anyone saw any of the Bronfmans was when they didn't like a local building project or something. But another Times article would note that Samuel Bronfman's friends described him as unpretentious and friendly, and as someone who did not like to flaunt his wealth. A childhood friend, Peter Kaufman, was quoted as saying that Samuel's favorite outfit was simple blue jeans, a t-shirt, and sneakers. Kaufman said Samuel was, quote, the greatest friend you could ever have. He really defines the word generous. So here's what happened. August 8th, 1975. Samuel Bronfman apparently visits his father, Edgar Sr., at his father's home in Yorktown Heights. They have dinner, yada yada, yada and at a pretty reasonable hour, 11.30 p.m., Samuel decides to head back to his mom and Margaret Loeb's house. She was, uh, they were already divorced at the time, and she was living in Harrison, New York, which is roughly 20 miles away. So it's not a terrible drive, maybe an hour south of Yorktown. He mentioned he might, type, he might stop by a party or see a friend on his way home, but didn't mention who it was, where it would be, etc. At about 2.45 a.m., so this would make it the wee hours of the morning on August 9th, Edgar Bronfman Sr. gets a phone call. And it's from his son, Samuel. And Samuel says he had been picked up, kidnapped, and, quote, that he, Edgar, would hear from them later. Huh. Samuel also noted that he had been taken away blindfolded. The whole phone call lasts no more than a minute or so. Um, and eventually when they would, you know, go looking, um, Samuel's car 
would be found in his mom's garage, but no sign of Samuel. On August 11th, a two-page single-space typed letter arrived in the post at the Bronfman household. Now, in this letter, the kidnappers were asking for ransom, $4.5 million. They assured the family that Samuel was alive, but being held, quote, in an isolated area with limited air and water, unquote. So basically, 10 days worth of air and water, they suggested in the, the letter. Um, so there's a real timestamp on when to get this ransom. The papers noted that while the ransom had not yet been paid, they were in the process of complying with the letter's instructions. Here is what a family spokesman said on August 12th about the case unto that point. We are proceeding on the assumption that the communication, i.e. the letter, is bona fide. Steps are underway to comply with ransom demands. We assume we will receive evidence to confirm the bona fide nature of the communication and that Sam is alive. Although the Federal Bureau of Investigation and local authorities are involved, Mr. Bronfman will comply with the written instructions. We anticipate no further communication today. When additional pertinent information is available, we will make it available to you. Sam's safe return is the overriding consideration. Huh. So, then August 13th, five days after Samuel disappeared, the Bronfman family receive a tape recording. And the family investigators weren't saying much at the time, only that this pushed the investigation and the search for Samuel to a quote-unquote critical stage. But a radio station claimed that the recording has Samuel's voice on it. So ostensibly, this is the proof that they were looking for that Samuel is still alive. August 16th, Edgar Sr. met a man in Woodside, Queens. Oh, we know where that is. We do. Queens. Now, is Queens, I heard, Mm. not very ethically... I (laughs) I will kill you, Adam. Uh, uh, Queens is uh, the most ethnically and linguistically diverse spot on the planet. Thank you very oh. much. Uh, so, Edgar Sr. goes to Woodside, Queens, apparently meeting... In the in the articles, it's described as an aqueduct um, that he meets them under, which I can think of zero aqueducts in Woodside, Queens, personally. Uh, so a little confused. I'm wondering if they mean under the L, like the L tracks for the 7 train. Oh, could be. Neither here nor there. I don't really know, but that's my suspicion. Um, so he goes to Woodside to deliver the ransom. It's a car-to-car drop-off, apparently. Um, and, of course, being a kidnapping ransom letter situation, he was, of course, told to come alone, right? Like, that's the whole thing. And, in fact, it seems like he had tried to make a drop previous day or something, and the guy was like, no, I'm not trusting that this you're alone, and he's... You know, so they had to do this again. So this time, um, there are Edgar still isn't alone, but they're I guess better hidden. So there, <laughs> there are F- he's just hidden. Well, he's just hidden, just hiding better. Um, so there are around a hundred FBI agents in decoy taxis, motorcycles, trunks, um, not trunks, trucks. Wow, that'd be weird if they were in the trunk. <laughs> decoy trunks. <laughs> Not even a full car. It's just a trunk. Just a trunk. Or like a trunk with a magician stuff. Just <laughs> sitting there on the road. <laughs> Illusions, Michael. Illusions, Michael. <laughs> it all comes full circle today. Uh, it's an illusion, Michael. So, so they're in all of these places, including the trunks, and uh, are watching the situation as, you know, uh, carefully and, and concealedly as possible. So Edgar hands over the ransom to the guy in a car in a rust-colored Oldsmobile, and the man goes on his way, and somehow, with 100 FBI men around and 
you know, trunks and trucks and whatever, they were unable to tail the car. <laughs> Go figure. Of course. So the driver got away, sort of. It turns out, though, that the guy collecting the ransom had used his own car. So when the police ran the plates, they were led directly to a Flatbush Brooklyn apartment. So the police go over there. They start staking out the apartment. Apparently, this is the apartment um, of a certain Mel Patrick Lynch. Lynch is a 37-year-old Irish immigrant known to the neighbors as Fireman Lynch. Guess what his profession was? Um, did he clean sewers? Nope. Oh, he's a fireman. Yeah. Got it. Um, clean sewers. <laughs> So it, it turns out, however, you know, they, they, they park their cars and they park it like around the corner, front of another house, sort of do the watching. And it turns out that the house they parked in front of for the stakeout was Lynch's partner in crime, huh. a guy named Dominic Byron. They just didn't really make the connection. They had no reason to. They didn't know anything about this guy. They were just following the plates and the other guys, just sheer sh- crazy luck huh. that they park in front of the other guy's house. Now, Dominic Byron was also an Irish immigrant. He was 53 years old, a limousine service operator, husband and father. And apparently he came to the police's attention because he he was unnerved by these parked cars with, I guess, suited men sitting inside outside of his apartment. He's yeah. like, what the fuck is going like, on? Um, what is this? Right. Um, and so and this is funny to me, but he sends his daughter to the police precinct to say there were hit men outside his house, which first thought. You think there are hitmen outside your house? Why, why are you sending your daughter out of the house to go to the? Pl- it just seems like you're putting her in danger. And that anyway, it's fine. Um. So she goes to the police. She says, "Hey, there's some weird guys parked outside our house. My dad thinks they're hitmen. <laughs> My dad thinks they're hitmen. My dad thinks they're hitmen. Um, but the police put two and two together, realize it's the FBI." And instead, the various law enforcement members say, aha, this is interesting. And for some reason, they go to the Byron home and confront Dominic Byron. He confesses immediately. He says, absolutely, I am involved, but I'm a forced participant in this crime. This is not a willing act. Byron also said that storming Mel Lynch's apartment would be a bad call. Apparently, that was what they, they were getting ready to just storm the barricades and go in but byron said it it might prompt a violent end for the various participants involved so i hate that phrase it might prompt a violent end it might prompt a violent end i don't want to do this it may prompt a violent end <laughs> um so instead the investigate the investigators allowed byron to call lynch which is what he would usually do when he was going to head over but rather than keep the ruse up byron tells lynch over the phone it's all over, Mel. They're coming over, which incredible. Just, <laughs> just completely. It's all over, Mel. They're coming over. So, apparently, per the New York Times, Samuel had been begging all this time not to be killed. Just the day before, when Lynch had gotten the ransom money, he admitted he thought the FBI was on to him. So this is Mel, that uh, Mel Lynch, that you know, he he said to Sam, like, yeah, I think the FBI's getting close. <laughs> I think they it out. And he said he would sooner kill Samuel and himself before going to jail. No one wants to be killed. So apparently when Byron called and said it was over, Lynch sobered up. Per a more recent Times recap of this whole affair, Lynch said, um, or Lynch sat down next to Samuel and said, they're on their way. 
Samuel asked who, and Lynch said the FBI, at which point poor Samuel says, what are you going to do? Because he's like, you mentioned like a, a day ago, you're going to murder you're gonna me. You're going to murder me. And Lynch responds. feels very, very extreme. I just want to clarify what the game plan is at this juncture. Why am I getting murdered in this? Right. And uh, Lynch responds, we're going to give up. So, quick change of heart. Yeah. Quite, quite a turnaround from, there. From, I think I'm going to murder you and myself. Right. To, we'll give up. I was guessing jigs up guys all right i was a little i was a little tired and it's not enough just a bad day bad day i wasn't really gonna i got you know what's the point ran some money and it's just what's the point of killing everybody right so on sunday august 17th 1975 so this is nine days since the initial abduction samuel bronfman ii was rescued police rushed into the apartment at 601 east 19th street where Samuel was sitting blindfolded on the couch and Mel Lynch was sitting next to him. A police officer would later testify that Bronfman was blindfolded with adhesive tape wrapped all the way around his head. I know. Oh no. Why? Oh, that sounds terrible. It's one of the worst details. Put a fucking blindfold on. Right. Adhesive tape over your eyelids. Not the eyelids. And according to some (sighs) other reporting, like it had been there long enough that when they took it off like there were bits of like skin and hair growing into it. Of course. Because, oh, oh. It's horrible. Um, so also recovered along with Samuel was the $2.3 million that Edgar had paid the day before. Now, apparently you remember they asked for 4.5. Apparently they negotiated down. <laughs> 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 Which I have so many questions about. It's like, uh, can we have... Five point two, no. If that's ridiculous, you'll take four point five. Oh, or maybe. Well, that feels. You know what? No, no. Three point eight. And then apples. Isn't it wild though? Like you're like, why is this a tactic that either them Edgar or, or the police took? Like, you know what? I bet the, I bet we could get them to lower their price on your son's head. And then, even though we're planning on recovering everything, um, you're out less money. Like what? It just seems like such a bad... If you have the money, just give over the fucking 4.5 million. Yeah, no, I don't really care about that much. <laughs> yeah, really? But let's see if we'll do it for lower. <laughs> let's do it for lower. She just really loves a good, like a, like a good, on, like, haggle situation. See if we'll do it on a bargain. The thrill of the deal. It's like, no, give my son back and I'll give you $2. <laughs> Fine. $2 is a final offer. <laughs> so they do recover this, this give money. Give me money. <laughs> Give me my son and pay me for him. <laughs> so this this negotiated down two point three million dollars um, was found under a bed in an unoccupied apartment in the neighborhood. Apparently, one of Lynch and Byron's friends um, was a little bit older and had gone into some sort of medical facility recently, and it was under his bed. Now the guy had no idea this was happening. Um, they just like went into his apartment and and did it. So here is the New York Times from Monday, August 18th, 1975. The rescuers reported that they had found young Mr. Bronfman sitting on a couch in Mr. Lynch's apartment, his hands loosely bound in front of him, adhesive over his mouth and eyes. The agent removed the tape. Thank God, the kidnapped victim said. I want to call my father. He went on. And when he got his father on the telephone, these were his words, according to police rescuers. Dad, I'm all right. Thanks for everything, Dad. Mr. Byron told the police and the FBI that he and Mr. Lynch had been dragooned into the kidnapping by two strange men. 
The strangers, he said, hired a Byron limousine and then by gunpoint forced Mr. Byron to help abduct Mr. Bronfman from his home in Purchase, New York in northwest, uh, in northern Westchester County and Mr. Lynch to detain the victim in the Brooklyn apartment. But after the ransom recovery, J. Wallace LaPrade, head of the FBI's New York office, said, quote, as far as we are concerned, all the individuals known to be involved have been arrested, unquote. He denied that any other kidnapped, sus kidnapped suspect was being sought. So basically, they're saying we were forced to do this. These guys had us at gunpoint and made us kidnap him. And the police were like, no, no, it was, it was just you two. It was just you guys. Um, now, from the kidnappers' accounts, the police learn that the police learn <laughs> the police learn <laughs> oh, it's been a long day adam from the kidnappers counts the police learned that lynch and byron had been friends for years and lynch had convinced byron that kidnapping was an easy way to make a buck without any real harm being done to someone so initially this is what they say they first began to drive up to where sam lived with his mom in the summer of 1973 so two years in advance of this date and made several more trips about 30 or 40 of them until they pulled the proverbial trigger on their plan in 1975. Samuel returned to Yorktown Heights, where champagne flowed among friends and relatives and domestic staff to celebrate his safe return. Peter Kaufman, that childhood friend we mentioned earlier, good-naturedly quipped, quote, you'll do anything for publicity. We've had, we've done a lot of wild things, but never a kidnapping, and I don't think you're worth 4.5 million. <laughs> and when told that the ransom had in fact been reduced, Peter added, well... He's worth 2.3 million, maybe. Oh, God. And if you're thinking, great, case closed, all done, all's well that ends well, think again. Oh, boy. Because there's about to be a plot twist. Once Lynch and Byrne lawyer up, they will soon be claiming something incredible. That they weren't kidnappers at all. That this was all a hoax. And that Samuel Bronfman had been in on it from the jump. That was my theory. That was my hot really? take. Really? Gosh darn it. Oh, man. Well... I guess we'll find out more, more about on this after the break. Here we go. So you listen to our podcast, which means you must love mysteries. But how would you like to solve your very own mystery? Hunt a Killer is an immersive murder mystery game told over the course of six episode boxes. Each box is filled with different clues and physical items such as autopsy reports, witness statements, and more. You'll use these clues to solve an ongoing murder mystery. Work solo or as a team of sleuths to finally crack the case and reveal the murderer. So do you think you have what it takes to hunt a killer? If so, head to www.huntakiller.com and use the code NY Mystery Machine for 20% off the first box. That's www.huntakiller.com and the code is NY Mystery Machine. Sign up now and begin the hunt. Bow, bow, bow. The New York Mystery Machine is brought to you in part by listeners like you. That's right. Head on over to our Patreon and for as little as $3 a month, you can help keep the pod growing. By joining, you can access a whole bunch of cool stuff such as mini episodes, swag, exclusive playlists, and more. Head to www.patreon.com slash nymysterymachine to find out more and become a patron. That's www.patreon.com slash nymysterymachine and join our ever-growing community today.
we're back. Tell me why you why what was your what yeah, I, what took I you just, off? Ah, gosh, I don't know. It's just something about the whole case has all seemed really weird and I don't know. I think that it's an interesting plot to like play against your parents to get money out of the deal. You split mm-hmm. you all split the money. Yeah. Absolutely. Your dad is the Seagram's guy. Yep. Like we're thinking what year is this? 19 1975. 1975. Seagram is that like some it's high. huge. Seagram's is huge. Um it sounds like a good ploy. If you're not getting the family money now, you want to get some family money later. I mean, you're not getting the family later, you want to get it now. You know? Well, tell me all about it, Christina. Well, October 1976, that's when the trial finally happens, right? So it's it's over just over a year since everything happened. And when the trial of Mel Lynch and Dominic Byron was set to begin, the story had changed wildly, right? So per Byron's lawyer, a guy na- by the name of de Blasio, I don't believe there's any relation, <laughs> uh, the whole situation was staged and much more complicated than you would ever believe. So here's what de Blasio said. He said that Lynch and Samuel Bronfman were lovers. Oh, God. They'd met in June 1974, had sex in the pool house on the Bronfman estate, and Lynch was often driven there by Byron because he owed Lynch some favors. Hence the 30 to 40 trips up that way. They weren't about surveillance of a potential mm. kidnapping target. They were about a friend helping another guy meet up with his paramour for a romantic tryst in a pool house. Oh, God. So why the kidnapping? Apparently, per de Blasio, Samuel wanted cash. Yeah, it makes sense. And what better way than to make his own family give it to him by staging his kidnapping and ransom? Lynch was swayed to participate in this because Samuel had threatened to tell the fire department for whom Lynch worked that Lynch was gay, which at the time would not only have made life difficult for Lynch, but would have put his employment at risk. Hmm. Now, why did Samuel need the money and need it quick? Unclear. Why did he not just ask his extremely wealthy family for money uh, for a loan or whatever? Again, unclear. Lynch's only comment about their affair was that they had sex and talked about things in general. Very clinical. Nothing about dreams or romance or anything else. Now, interestingly, the prosecutor, um, Jeffrey Orlando, never challenged this story at all hmm. of Bronfman, you know, being Lynch's lover or anything like that. Per a recent article, quote, it was 1976 and the topic of homosexuality was so taboo, he decided, that directly challenging the claim of an affair would be pointless, unquote. And yet the same article notes that the judge himself was very surprised that Orlando hadn't challenged the story or objected. Again, quoting, Mr. Bronfman looked to jurors like a man caught in a nightmare, fighting back tears and biting his fingernails while on the stand. Following a torrent of accusations about secret sexual escapades and plans to film pornography, the judge halted proceedings, took Mr. Orlando aside, accused him of a lack of propriety, and said he was amazed Mr. Orlando had not objected when the defense made smearing innuendos about Mr. Bronfman. Which, you know, fair. Yeah. Meanwhile... Lynch performed very well on the witness stand. He was up there for four days. And while New York, you know, police officers and FBI agents apparently were contradicting themselves or messed up parts of their stories or like just got little things wrong, Lynch did not. He did not miss a beat. He got every minor detail right and consistent and all those things. So, for example, when asked if anyone else joined him and Bronfman at the table when they were first when they first met, he corrected the prosecutor and said, no. And we were at the bar, not a table. So extremely detailed, extremely consistent. In the end, 
The jury acquitted both Lynch and Byron of the kidnapping. But they convicted them of extortion. Yeah, that still makes sense. At least two jurors believe the claims made by the defense that Samuel had staged his own kidnapping. Another stated he just didn't feel the evidence was strong enough to convict for kidnapping. So here's the December 11th, 1978 New York Times article. A number of factors, they, the jurors, said, persuaded them that Mr. Bronfman had engineered his own kidnapping and the subsequent extortion plot that included Mr. Lynch and Mr. Byron. Among the reasons they said were the following. Mr. Bronfman's voice on two tapes that he made and sent to his father during his nine days of alleged captivity in Mr. Lynch's apartment did not sound like the voice of someone who was being forcibly restrained. He put on the same act when he testified, Mr. Link said. His voice would be breaking, and then he would be asked a question, and suddenly he was composed. The multi-knotted piece of Venetian blind cord and draper with which Mr. Bronfman was allegedly bound throughout his apparent captivity was so flimsy that it came apart in the jury room when it was being examined. If I was a kidnapper, Mr. Link said, I would have used one piece of strong rope. You tell them, Mr. Link. You tell them. Just one piece. The bottom half of the blindfold allegedly worn by Mr. Bronfman was a flap that could easily be lifted, Mrs. Dracott said. Mr. Bronfman had said that he was not familiar with guns, but that the weapon carried by Mr. Lynch had been a thirty-eight caliber pistol. In fact, a thirty-eight caliber pistol was recovered with the ransom money, but the unusual revolver looked more like a forty-five caliber weapon than a thirty-eight caliber pistol. Huh. I know something about guns, Mr. Link said, <laughs> and even I thought at first it was a forty-five caliber. Uh, Love that phrase from a juror. I know only about guns. <laughs> I know, I know a thing I do about guns. The prosecutor Orlando, in a recent article, noted that the allegation of his involvement, or of you know Sam, uh, Sam Bronfman's involvement in his own kidnapping, quote poisoned the atmosphere forever for Sam. He will forever be tagged with that allegation. And indeed, 10 years after the trial, Edgar Bronfman, Samuel's younger brother, was made head of Seagram, even though Sam had worked there longer, had a college degree, and the family had a tradition of passing the company to the eldest son. So whether or not this was a result of the allegation or whether or not this had anything to do with the rumor that he was gay or anything else, you know, or if there were other impacts on his life from this allegation, um, Samuel Bronfman has not stated. Did Samuel get into any trouble because of this? No. So the the lawsuit was basically, we were set up to do this thing by Samuel, and they That's never the claim of the defense. And they never were like, great. Well, then we had to put Samuel on trial. That wasn't a thing. No. He just took the stand as a witness. Exactly. And did he perform well for them or for? Like in the trial? Yeah. Um, that's when he was like biting his nails and seemed really nervous. And, um, you know, the, so clearly some of the jurors didn't feel that. Got it. But, you know, one could also say it was reliving a traumatic experience. Sure. How do they think this is going to end? That they're doing this like, that they sue them. Like, how do they think this was all going to end? Well, I mean, it's a state. It's a state prosecution, right? It's, you know, this is the criminal no, case. No, but like, how did these... How do the three of them, if it was a setup, mm. how do you think this is going to end? Great question. Great question. Like, if they got the ransom money, they handed him back, do they think that they wouldn't get in trouble for, like, right. kidnapping him? Right. Or, like, I mean, you know. They did not think this far ahead. I mean, according to them, they weren't. They probably weren't thinking that far ahead because Samuel has theoretically threatened to reveal 
to the fire department that you know lynch is gay which is going to make his employment hell you know so like not thinking that far ahead i guess but are you ready for it yeah just one more twist oh god in 2020 three years ago Mm -hmm. peter de blasio the attorney for the defense wrote a memoir self-published entitled let justice be done and peter de blasio with both lynch and byron already dead wrote in that memoir quote about sam I want it to be clear to all who may ever read these pages that Samuel Bronfman was not a part of the kidnapping. Neither he nor Lynch were gay as far as anyone ever knew, and certainly they were not lovers. Unquote. He then described how his tack for the trial changed when he saw Lynch on the stand. He went from thinking he would say Lynch was a, quote, monster who preyed on his feeble-minded friend Dominic, forcing him under duress to aid in the most terrible of crimes imaginable, Instead, when he saw Lynch talk, he realized he could do better. Hence the story of the affair and Bronfman's own orchestration of the events. De, ba- De Blasio wrote, quote, I can look back now after a 50-year, 600-trial career and say that among the thousands of witnesses I observed, nobody approached the magnificence of Mel Patrick Lynch. He was the Arturo Toscanini, Enrico Caruso of witnesses. He turned a horror story into a tragedy of operatic dimension. The jurors were mesmerized. If they could have, they would have exploded in applause and cried for an encore. He even pointed out that if this were a real hoax, why would Samuel have used adhesive tape as a blindfold and actually put it on his face for all that time that hair and stuff would grow into it? And if you're worried about the ethics of this, of any of this, you're not wrong, but maybe not the way you think. So my brain is like, are you kidding me? This guy just straight up fabricated this elaborate story you know a really sort of smearing allegation against the victim um but per times article after de blasio's death in 2021 um a law professor at nyu stephen giller said his obligation to his client continues forever even after his client's death he's saying my client who was acquitted of kidnapping is really a kidnapper that's exactly what he's not allowed to say huh so the defense attorney made it all up Samuel Bronfman was kidnapped. Huh. And uh, he's quoted in the Times and being like, yeah, I'm glad he, uh, he finally acknowledged that. Good. <laughs> and that's it. And that is the wild story of the kidnapping of Samuel Bronfman. What an insane story. Isn't it? That was so insanely weird. Every time, every time you think it's done, it's not. I really thought that, I thought it was a sob. I thought that was my, my gut. I was like, oh. He's behind it the whole time. But then in my brain, as you were talking, I'm like, yeah, what the fuck? What's the end game, though? The end game doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. Like, they're not, unless in their agreement to give him back, it's like, you don't know who we are. We'll never reveal ourselves. X, Y, Z. I mean, I think that was theoretically the plan, but also. Man, what a weird case. Yeah. That is, when we say strange New York. There you go. That's a strange. And then three-ish years later, uh, the Bronfman sisters are born. And then they would <laughs> be a part of Nexium, which yep. you know we know a little bit about on this show. Yeah, we do. So, wow, that is insane. And he's still alive. Yep. Yeah, he's still alive. Samuel Bronfman. Yeah. What a crazy. What a crazy story. Turn of events. Well, thanks for that, Christina. That Anytime. was a doozy. Uh, well, I was about to say if you have any ideas or theories on it. There's no theories to give. I think we kind of got down to the 
the nitty gritty of it all. De Blasio told the truth. Well, yeah, told the truth. Finally. Yep. There what a go. crazy thing. Well, gosh, that <laughs> took me for a, a swirl. Well, if you have any thoughts about this episode or any of our episodes, uh, you know how to find us. You head over to Instagram, on Facebook, or on TikTok at NRA Mystery Machine, uh, Twitter at NRA Mysteries. Uh, you can email us nymysterymachine at gmail.com. You can also head on over to our our, our, um, our our page on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give us five stars. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts or a review on Audible and uh, tell us what you like. Tell us when you hear more of. Uh, and of course, if you're interested in, in supporting the show in a deep financial way, head on over to patreon.com slash nymysterymachine for as little as $3 a month. You join the community for as little as five. You get a patron exclusive, a sticker, and some other stuff as you work up the work, work it on up. So we love more patrons. We love to see you uh, joining this amazing community. If you're interested in some New York Mystery Machine swag, some T-shirts, you head on over to belowthecollar.com slash Machine and pick up one of our fun T-shirts. We have about seven or eight designs in now. We're, we're kind of maybe even more, maybe even nine. Who knows? Um, but go and look at the T-shirts. Thank you to everyone who's purchased those T-shirts. When you buy a T-shirt, take a picture of yourself in the yes. T-shirt. We want to see you in them. And if you're like, oh, don't share them on social media, we'll do that too. We just kind of want to see them though. Yeah. So we'd love to see you in your New York Mystery Machine T-shirt. Um, and uh, yeah, if you want to buy a Mr. New York Mystery Machine sticker, um, yeah, just DM us on Instagram and we have the official logo sticker and we still have a few more pride stickers. Ooh. So if you want to buy a pride sticker for $5, you DM us on Instagram. If you want to buy a regular sticker for $3, they're both for $8. You can do that as well. We're back all new next week on Labor Day. Oh man. And uh, I've been on a mace. I've been Christine Marinelli. Thank you for taking a ride on the New York Mystery Machine. Tell me how, but for ghosts. <laughs>